Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this uh, day. We pray that you will um, bless our time together this morning as we look into the things that are happening in the world and how they fit in with Bible prophecy. <clears throat> pray that you will bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, uh, usually at some point during the week, I have an uh, epiphany of a title, and it usually just pops into my head, and this time nothing popped into my head all week long until I was sitting in the back back there, and I saw a picture. You'll see, a pic you'll see what sort of prompted me to do that. But it does seem like in many levels that there are people trying to burn down everything. Um, spiritually, <laughs> government, physically even. We'll talk a little bit about that. We talk about the convergence of events and the things that all seem to be happening. So today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit more on the Abraham Accord that we talked about last week, just a quick review and then some of the reactions to that, because I do think that it's a pretty significant thing. Uh, but it really is, as we said, a disrupted world. Uh, also a reminder that uh, rtntv.org, uh, we're still working out some of the bugs Remnant Truth Network, uh, the updates will be there. That's a place we've, that we're developing to put up teachings of me and other people and to avoid the problems with YouTube. Uh, YouTube, Facebook, uh, there's, there's clearly a concerted effort to censor people. Uh, don't have any slides on it. You can pray for the churches in California which are now being, a number of them are being fined by uh, judges and local county officials and state officials. And there seems to be this concerted effort to just shut down people meeting in churches. Uh, part of me thinks that that's related to the election yeah. and other things, uh, but particularly the election. Uh, and it does seem to be in states where a certain political party is uh, controlling things. Uh, and I don't really have too many comments about the whatever that thing was in Milwaukee or virtual convention that took place. The Republicans will do theirs this week. Uh, I will say this, and so if this gets me banned or blocked on YouTube, so be it. Um, I think Kamala Harris is a phony. I think she's a radical leftist. Her parents were radical leftists. I have very little respect for her. I don't know if you remember, uh, the things she said to Brett Kavanaugh during the confirmation process were just absolutely appalling. But there was a subsequently to that, there was a, a circuit court of appeals judge, I believe, that came up. And I don't know if you remember the video of her. I think I played it here, her attacking him because he actually belonged to the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic organization, and her opinion was anybody who belongs to an organization like that, that uh, you know, somebody who might actually be pro-life has no business ever being a federal judge in the United States. So I'm just telling you, if the, the prospect that Joe Biden would serve out a full term is fairly slim, um, I actually think that um, 
I have a greater chance of winning the Masters than he does of out a, filling out a full term. Uh, that's just my opinion. But it is uh, a difficult time. So stock market is back at record levels, but when you look and examine it, what you find is that, uh, for example, the S&P 500 uh, compared, it, while the S&P 500 index is up above what it was before all the lockdowns and the economy and the effect of what happened in China kind of rippled through the economy, the oil war, price war, all that sort of thing, the articles I read this week were that of the 500 companies in the S&P 500 index, five have gained. Five have gained. 495 are below what they were back when all of this started. So it's been a pretty focused um, uh, uptick. You know, for example, a couple years ago, Apple became the first trillion-dollar company in terms of market value. Uh, now there are a couple others that are trillion-dollar companies. I think Tesla, I think also uh, Amazon. Apple just went over $2 trillion this week in market cap. And, you know, this is a stunning run-up uh, for a company. where, And they've had their stores closed. I had an issue with my... My new phone just stopped working, and I got online to get an appointment. It was like two or three weeks out. Now, that I don't panic about that I worry about. That worried me. <laughs> now, I was able, I happened to go over there just on a whim, and there was nobody there, so they let me in, and I got my phone replaced. Um, so I don't worry about much, but that, not having my phone or my computer, that really, that's something I worry about. Listen, so here's uh, some, a graphic that shows a little bit about what's happened. This is from the Wall Street Journal on, uh, I believe, Wednesday. I know jobless claims went up again last week in the United States. The economy is sort of recovering, but it's very slow. I was in some meetings this week with people who are, um, lenders to commercial um, building owners. And there's quite a bit of concern on the part of those people that they're just not going to get their rent paid. Uh, I saw, and I don't remember if I shared this last week, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal about a condo in New York down in the West Chelsea neighborhood down there in the area of Greenwich Village that was on the market for $19.5 million. It's now been reduced to 10 and a half. There were articles I read this week from people in New York, New York who said there's so many, used to be maybe one or two apartments in our giant apartment building that were available. Now there are so many I can't count. The movers are overwhelmed in New York. They can't even be, they aren't even taking calls. And one guy described his apartment building. He said the only thing that I could compare it to was move in, move out day at my college dorm at a big university when I was in college. You know how that goes if you've ever, even in a small school, it's a, um, it's a crazy time, and that's what it's like. But look at some of these. Here's some little indexes that indicate, for example, consumer discretionary spending. Look at the things that are up. Domino's, Pizza, Home Depot, Tractor Supply, Amazon. 
things that are down, those are the red, like Las Vegas Sands, Carnival Cruise Lines, Starbucks, Nike, Kohl's, all of those are down. So you can see there's pretty dramatic decline in a lot of those businesses, a lot of retails thing. Here's materials. Uh, just a couple companies are up or flat and a lot that are really not doing well. Real estate, uh, for example, hotels uh, are way down. I drive by these hotels. I was over by Dayton this week, and there's just, the hotels are just empty. Uh, there's nothing in the parking lot, and people have to pay mortgages on those buildings. Here's another one, healthcare. Uh, Zimmer Biomed is a person who has multiple joint replacements made by Biomed. Uh, you would wonder why are they down, and the reason they're down is because of the way healthcare went during the coronavirus uh, concerns or whatever. They just shut down all other aspects, to any discretionary, voluntary things like joint replacements and that type of thing just didn't happen, and so that had a big impact on the sales of Zimmer Biomed. Information technology, you can see that some of these companies have really increased because of everything. Uh, this is a photograph that was taken in Northern California. My understanding is there are about 100,000 people under evacuation orders. There are hundreds of fires burning across California. There are 30-some that are major, they're having trouble dealing with them. Part of it is that in the past, the California prison system has set up fire teams, and people from the prison are allowed to go out and fight the fires, and they do it. They get extra credit for time served, you know, good time credit and that type of thing. But what's happened in California is they have made a concerted effort to reduce the prison population, by reducing the prison population, the people who would serve as volunteer firefighters uh, in these, in, during the fire season are way down in numbers. So they're having trouble getting people to fight the fires. This is kind of an interesting thing. I have a friend, she always tells me that it seems like everything happens in twos these days. A lot of times the, these disasters come with a double whammy. Like there might be a couple of earthquakes might even be an earthquake in the same place, you know, in a very short period of time, which is unusual. This is, uh, right now there are two what appear to be uh, going to be hurricanes hitting in the Gulf. Uh, one is already in the Gulf, should be uh, hitting landfall sometime around 1 a.m. Tuesday morning in the area, it looks like in the area sort of around New Orleans. And remember, it was 15 years ago this week that Hurricane Katrina hit, which I personally think it was tied to um, the United States forcing Israel to evacuate Gaza. Had a very interesting conversation with a gentleman in, a, in the Tel Aviv airport about nine years ago, and we talked about that. And he said, you people need to understand that if you do things against Israel, he was an Orthodox Jew, um, and we had about a four-hour conversation because our flight to New York was delayed. But he said, when you do things to Israel, bad things happen. And he said, listen, look at what happened in 2005 with forcing us to evacuate Gaza. That was really pushed by the Bush administration. And what happened? You had Katrina right after. 
fact, we evacuated Gaza and you evacuated the Gulf Coast. He said, if you look at the area affected by the evacuation in Gaza relative to Israel, he said, you will find that there's a direct correlation in the ratio between the area of the United States evacuated relative to the size of the United States. So he, had, he was very, very detailed about this. And I don't disagree with that. So, that. so here we have another hurricane coming towards our Gulf Coast. And here's the other one. There's some, I uh, think they might collide. I don't know. The one, one might push the other away. I, I don't know. I've never seen two hurricanes uh, collide like that, although I did use... I was using hurricanes for the zeros in my 2020 title slides. I don't know about that. And then this is also a big concern, is the continuing flooding in China. Uh, they have drought in a major food-producing region, and they have major flooding in their other major, their, essentially their breadbasket. And it's affecting things. And this is the Three Gorges Dam. Uh, there's been concerns expressed by some people involved with that dam by engineers and others that the dam could fail, which would be um, a human disaster uh, on an epic scale. Right now they're releasing um, between 49, I believe it's 49,000, there's a number in here someplace, 49,000 cubic meters of water per second. And at times, though, they've uh, increased at the 75,000 cubic meters per second. That's a lot of water. And that water is all going downstream and flooding towns and villages and farmland and that sort of thing. So that's, and that's going to put pressure on the food supply. So and we had that derecho hit the Midwest and damage a lot of crops just a week ago. So there's a lot of, it's sort of like there's this convergence which I talk about all the time, doesn't seem like. There is this convergence of all these things happening at the same time. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Abraham Accord uh, that took place last week at the White House. Um, we talked extensively about that last week. I personally think that it is kind of a, a big deal. I, I don't think this is what a lot of people talk about, the peace treaty of Daniel 9.27, because I'm not convinced that what's in Daniel 9.27 is even a peace treaty. Uh, it doesn't say that. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Jared Kushner wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post last week titled, The Israel-UAE Accord Shows Trump's Strategy is Paying Off. He says this, the agreement is a breakthrough for Muslims who wish to come in peace to pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, the third holiest site in Islam. Direct flights between the two countries will facilitate pilgrimages to Al-Aqsa, a victory for religious pluralism and a repudiation of the false narrative used by extremists to bolster their ranks that the mosque is under attack. The deal came together as a result of negotiations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, facilitated and led by the United States. But it was the strategic policy shift undertaken by President Trump three and a half years ago that laid the foundation for the breakthrough the world witnessed this week. The agreement would not have been possible without the leadership of a president who refuses to do things the same old way just because that's how it's always been, been done. 
When President Trump took office, the Middle East was in a state of extreme turmoil. Newsflash for Jared Kushner, it's still in a state of extreme turmoil, even by the low standards of a region long plagued by danger and violence. Islamic State terrorists controlled an area in Iraq and Syria approximately the size of Ohio. The peace process between Israel and the Arab world had stalled. Iran was spreading instability through proxy fighters in Yemen, Iraq, and Syria. So he goes on and he's very, um, by praising President Trump, he's of course taking a lot of credit for himself. Uh, three and a half years later, he says, the, the strategic realignment continues to pay off. Islamic State is gone. Abu Bakr, Bakr al-Baghdadi has been killed. Iran remains a pariah state, but is more constrained than ever, which I would disagree with. But nevertheless, you can read that. Now, it's interesting. There's been a lot of different reactions to this. Uh, for example, there is a... Uh, this is the World Council of Muslim Communities, which I reported by Sky News in uh, Sky News Arabia, which is uh, in Abu Dhabi. The World Council of Muslim Communities confirmed on money its support and support for the so its support and support for the sovereign decision and the Emirati diplomatic efforts that resulted in reaching a peace treaty between the UAE and Israel. The treaty aims to put an end to the conflicts in the region and to spread the values of peace among its peoples by achieving the legitimate, legitimate demands of the Palestinian people and their right to establish their independent state with East Jerusalem as its capital. That's how they view it. That's, I don't think that's what this agreement says. I don't even know if I would call it a peace agreement because they weren't at war, they've never fought a war. They, this is a normalization process that's taking place. But nevertheless, it's viewed by many people as a peace treaty. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, he was on, in kind of an unusual move, he was on Sky News in uh, the UAE, talking about the plan with one of the uh, news people there which is kind of unusual. I also would remind you it's called the Abraham Accord. And we have this situation where, uh, remember that the um, leader of Al-Azhar University, the Imam, and Pope Francis met in Abu Dhabi about a year and a half ago and signed this agreement that was to bring sort of an accord between the Abrahamic face of Christianity and Islam. I don't think they really mentioned Judaism, but, uh, but at least Christianity and Islam. The, um, and that was about the fourth meeting that the Pope had had with this imam. Dubai, or Abu Dhabi, part of the, one of the seven sheikdoms that make up the United Arab Emirates then had a um, this they released this information about the Abrahamic family house project the Abrahamic family house project will show we are all brothers that's to be built in Abu Dhabi uh, I believe it's under construction now one of the um, so as people have watched this 
agreement and responded to it. I'm going to go through some of the different responses. One was a clarification by the United Arab Emirates. Uh, their foreign minister, uh, and their, this is the UN representative from the United Arab Emirates, talked about this was a vision for tolerance. This is what we were doing. Uh, the foreign minister did a teleconference, which everybody's doing. And it's always interesting. I look at the quality of the video and the teleconference, and I'm thinking, like, Abu Dhabi, I mean, Dubai, United Arab Emirates, this is one of the richest places on the planet. Can't they get a better internet and a better video link and that type of thing. So here is the foreign minister. Uh, he was did a teleconference with the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. to talk about the uh, agreement between Israel and the UAE. Good morning. As these things develop, I would say that it was only natural that we will look into normalizing relationship. And uh, it was going to happen. It was going to happen this year. It was going to happen next year or the year after. It was a matter of time. And I think the UAE is not the only country here. There are several Arab countries that are on the scale in different stages. Now, in parallel, why did it happen this year? I think in parallel to that, uh, this has, there has been serious concerns with the issue of annexation. And uh, the UAE uh, went overboard, really, as part of uh, the Arab League. Other than the usual statements, the UAE was one of the early uh, uh, Gulf states, really, to come with a firm uh, rejection of, uh, of the issue of, uh, of, of annexation and concern about it. And then, you know, uh, Yusuf had this remarkable uh, op-ed in the Israeli press and these things sort of developed and I think part of the thinking in all three capitals where can we actually connect the two can we actually connect the two and I was speaking to a European ambassador just an hour ago and I said you know can we actually connect the two and give and take take something which is annexation and give normalization and, and, and rightly he said, well, the way we look at it, it's really give and give. Because for us, normalization is also a positive thing, not the same way we look at it through an Arab context. So I would say that these things sort of developed and uh, many people played uh, an important role here. Uh, from our part, Yusuf Al-Atibah certainly, and then of course a team uh, here in Abu Dhabi with Sheikh Abdullah as its head, played an important part. Now, underpinning all that, it's very important. Underpinning all that is uh, the, strategi the strategic view. I mean, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed uh, has a strategic view. You, you can't, you know, you could do things normally every day, but you don't get the big opportunity unless, unless you take a big risk. And here he felt that this was worth it. Now, having said that, in my assessment, this is going to be a warm piece because we really, unlike Jordan and unlike uh, Egypt, we have not fought a war with Israel. So that is not really uh, 
a factor here. It's not part of the, let's say, national uh, national psyche. Well, and what he essentially said to summarize was that we did this because this was a way to stop the annexation that the Israeli government was talking about doing, annexing parts of Judea, Samaria, and the Jordan Valley. So we were able to stop that. Now, there's one narrative that says that this that is only suspended temporarily. I believe from the UAE perspective, as I've read what they've said, they believe that that suspension is going to be for quite a significant period of time. That's causing some very severe political problems for Prime Minister Netanyahu. The settler parties and the uh, Orthodox and conservative Jewish communities uh, that make up the settlers are very, very upset with this. They, and so there's a concern about what happens if, because you'll see in a moment that the Israeli government's kind of in a state of turmoil uh, which seems to be par for the course everywhere you look these days. There seems to be governments in turmoil. I mean, there were things in Belarus this week. One of the opposition leaders in Russia, there's claims that he was poisoned. He's now been evacuated from the country. Um, there are just, um, everywhere you look, there's, there's turmoil and chaos. But, and so the Israelis are trying to get, the Israeli government's trying to get a budget deal hammered out. If they don't have that hammered out in the next day or so, they will go to another round of elections. And who knows what'll happen that time. Um, it's, it, it is, um, it, it makes the turmoil in our own politics look rather sort of like a nice, calm, glassy lake. <laughs> uh, but you know, there's a lot of turmoil in our politics, too. I want to make a comment, too. The, I think one of the things that was overlooked by a lot of people is that there's a very significant economic component to this agreement between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. For example, one of the things that's in there specifically that's contemporary or current is a cooperation towards getting a vaccine for the coronavirus. Uh, that seems to be the topic on everybody's agendas these days. But the economic thing is, I think, what makes it kind of a big deal because we know that in the end, this mystery Babylon that rises will have a heavy economic, it will control the economies of the world. So there'll be an economic aspect. Now, there's a lot of different theories in, among the Bible prophecy community about what constitutes this final Babylon some say that it's the United States. Some say that it's a mystery Babylon. So, you know, so we're not sure how it will be, that it's a Babylonian spirit that's in the world. And then some say it's Rome. And then others say it's literal Babylon revived, rebuilt. And so I'm just suggesting on the latter one, I'm not totally discounting it. I, it could be. But I'm just saying is, if, if it's going to become the economic powerhouse and center of the world, Babylon and Iraq is nowhere, 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 nowhere near this, the great city that all the people rule over. We know how, you know, it's the old saying is Rome wasn't built in a day. Uh, so here's a picture. I just, I, I 
love 3D graphics and everything. So here's a 3D graphic of Dubai. Now, this is, a, this is just one section of Dubai. It's incredible what they've built there. I mean, of course, that building in the middle, the Khalifa Burj Dubai is the tallest building on the planet. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the hotel out on the ocean that's sort of shaped like a sail, almost. That, that hotel is about 1,000 feet tall. Uh, the Burj Dubai is 27 or 2,800 feet tall, clearly by far the tallest building on the planet, although the Saudis have one that's supposed to be, nobody said, but the word is it's going to be somewhere around 3,500 feet tall when it opens soon. It's under construction in Jeddah, not too far from Mecca, from Mecca along the ocean. So they've not really released how it is, but there's this competition to do that. But so listen, so if Babylon's going to be rebuilt, going to be this economic powerhouse, I've looked for contemporary examples as to how quickly something can be built. And what you see there was built over about a 30 year period. The, the Burj Dubai, for example, took, I think it was started about 2005 and it opened around 2010. So it's not built in a day. So if Rabelon has to be rebuilt, then there seems to be some more time involved in all of these processes. But I'm also looking at other things going on, and I'm thinking like, well, maybe, maybe Babylon's not going to be rebuilt. But I'm not completely discounting that notion as a, one of the possibilities as to how this plays out. But look at this. I mean, I don't know if you remember, they had these, the Palm Islands that they built in the ocean. They you know, imported sand and did that. It's interesting, by the way, that um, they're, you know, they're beautiful. You can see them from space. They're huge. A lot of the lots in those streets have been on the, each of the palm branches have been built on and sold. But what are they finding? Well, they're finding that it's affecting the entire coastline of the United Arab Emirates because of the way it interferes with ocean currents. And so what they did there, they're having problems elsewhere with sandbars building up and that type of thing. And then they're also having problem with, uh, I'm not, not sure how to say this, is uh, the water stinks because it's uh, brackish. It's not flowing like it should. It's stagnant. Uh, they also built a thing that they call it the world, with a series of islands that's supposed to be like a map of the world globe. But uh, that I don't think they've sold any of those, and it's just kind of falling into disrepair. But this, it's a phenomenal uh, place, and you can see the building that just in Dubai that's taken place, let alone what's gone on down in Abu Dhabi. So that's just that I just sort of look at that as kind of a indicator as to how long this is people had a lot of money they built a lot of buildings a lot of really big buildings in a 30 year in 25 30 year period so it, it wasn't built overnight and i don't think a revived babylon would also if that's how it works out i don't think it's going to be built overnight another reaction to this uae plan was the saudis there's a lot of hope that the saudis will soon be on board the Saudi foreign minister came out and said, listen, we are committed to the Arab peace plan, the Arab peace initiative. The Arab peace initiative was issued out of some meetings that the 
Arab countries had in Beirut, Lebanon back in 2000, early 2002. Uh, there is a very, um, here's sort of an Arabic and um, a um, English version of it, uh, 2002 in Beirut. They met, they came up with, okay, 57 Arab and Muslim countries. I should say 57 Arab and Muslim states. I think some of you will know what that's a reference to. I've been to all 57 states, someone in politics once said, uh, which we don't have 57 states here. So it just so happens that some of them do have 57, other organizations do have 57 states. And so this is what they did. The Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs has a very good uh, detailed paper of 100 pages or so where they've gone through and analyzed the Arab Peace Initiative. And this is where we get into the problem with the language in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where it says, and he, the prince who will come, will confirm, this is the English translation, will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. Now, that's been, uh, as it's sort of worked its way through the uh, Bible prophecy sausage maker, um, you, what, what do they say about sausage? Or, I, I had a brother-in-law who worked in a, a meat processing plant, uh, and he would not eat bologna, uh, because he said, I've seen bologna being made, and I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> And they always say, the old saying is, you know, you may love sausage, but you don't want to watch it being made. And it's, it's an interesting process. I used to have a client that made sausages before they went out of business. Not because they were my client, by the way, but because of other things. But, um, and so that goes through the Bible prophecy sausage making machine, and it comes out the other end as the peace treaty, the peace treaty with the Palestinians. The, and I've heard people say, the Bible says that a Western European antichrist will enter into a peace agreement with Israel and the Palestinians. That's not what the scripture says. We really need to stick, I think, to what the scripture says. And the scripture is not perfectly clear. Uh, there is some belief that the Whoever it is that enters, confirms this covenant, or as they would say, enters into the peace agreement, that's the Antichrist. We'll be able to identify the Antichrist. I don't think it's going to be that easy. I'll use a couple of examples. First of all, use the example of the United Arab Emirates and Israel agreement. This has been in process for a number of years. This didn't happen overnight. And while there were some things stated about, we, you know, we think this is happening, we know these meetings are taking place, there were really no details that were released. In fact, even the press in Washington was shocked that the Trump White House was able to get this, and the, and the people who worked on it were able to get this to the end, end result, and nobody really knew about it. It was a, it was a big surprise to everybody. So... I would think that if it is a peace treaty, which I'm, as I've said, I'm not convinced about, that's talked about in Daniel 9.27, and people say it's a confirmation of an existing peace treaty. So 
a confirmation of a plan that's already out there. So my question is then, which plan? Because you have the, um, the Arab Peace Initiative, which is quite long, has about 10 major points. You have the Oslo Accords. By the way, very interesting, if you have access to home box office, there's a video called Oslo that's done about the negotiations, the secret negotiations that took place. That, that was done over a long period of time in secret clandestine meetings that nobody talked about, even nobody involved on the Palestinian or Israeli sides and the, Os and the Norway side, they, nobody ever really talked about that publicly. Now there was this major big public signing ceremony on the White House lawn, September 13th, uh, 1993, but, and so everybody thinks, well, that's how it's gonna be. Everybody will know that this is the Antichrist because this is the agreement and that sort of thing. But I'm like, well, is that the agreement? You know, because the scripture doesn't really give specific parameters of the agreement, although there is in the following verse, or the following part of the passage in Daniel, it does sort of allude to that um, will cause the daily sacrifice to cease. That's, so if you just extrapolate out from that, that certainly says, well, there's a daily sacrifice. If there's a daily sacrifice, there must be a temple, that sort of thing. I think those are reasonable conclusions. But other than that, the exact parameters are not here. But I think it will involve a land, temple mount um, aspect. So that's, uh, and so the Arab Peace, uh, Peace Initiative is this, they want Israel to withdraw to the 1967 lines. Uh, that's what they've said. They, um, they said here, military solution to the conflict will not achieve peace or provide security for the parties. And I would say that's kind of a, really kind of a ludicrous statement. You know, military security does, military presence does provide security. I mean, there's, there's many examples in history that that does. Now, maybe because they said this because they were weak, and this is, this is when Muslims make peace, is when they're weak. This is when they propose these things. So they want withdrawal from the Golan Heights. Uh, they also have this section in here that talks about patriation. Um, let's see if I can find that. Assures the rejection of all forms of Palestinian patriation which conflict with the special circumstances of the Arab host countries. What does that mean? Um, here's my translation. We don't want these Palestinian people in our country anymore. We want them to go home. We want them to be, we don't want them to become citizens of our country. So you, you look at this, and I've had discussions with um, Palestinian supporters and the Palestinian people about, and Palestinian people about this is, why didn't you guys ever complain about how you're treated in Jordan or Syria or Lebanon? because you're not treated very well there, you're still in refugee camps there. It's not, no, Israel's not occupying those places. You're being used as political pawns. So anyway, that's the Arab Peace initi Initiative. Um, they want to get everything stopped. So that came out in 2002, that's still on the table. Oslo is still on the table. There's the, uh, I think the Europeans have one, there's also the, um, 
I want to call it the gang of four plus one or P4 plus one or whatever. There's a group of four big countries that have their own initiative out there and they're all sort of in the same thing. But the fact of the matter is I'm not convinced that um, it's a peace agreement in the sense that we think of a peace agreement because you see here in Daniel 9:27, he shall confirm the covenant with the many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even the consummation. And that determined shall be poured out, shall be poured upon the desolate. So here it says he stops the sacrifice and the oblation. He causes them to cease. This is the Antichrist. He commits the abomination of desolation. And if you go to Daniel... Um, now I'm going to forget the passage, and I don't have it sitting in front of me, where he talks about the 2,300 days of the sacrifice. Um, 2,300 days from the start of the sacrifice is when the temple is cleansed, when Jesus returns. So you, when you see the sacrifices start, then you know, okay, we're in this period. That's pretty clear. We can, we can sort of start the clock. Um, and it may be that we'll be able, people will be able to determine who the, it is that started the whole ball rolling. But if it's like all these other, there's a peace agreement, it's going to be like the, uh, the scrum, the rugby scrum that takes place whenever there's a camera that shows up in the halls of Congress. You know, everybody's trying to get in front of the camera. Have you ever seen that? Isn't that one of the most disgusting things you've ever seen? You know, and, and so which one of those people is the, the one who confirms this covenant, if it's a peace agreement? The other thing that I think is a lot overlooked, he shall confirm. Confirm is gavar. It's a Hebrew word. If you look at the other uses of the word throughout the Bible, you're going to see that it's really in the sense, and I talked about this when um, the Obama administration was... Um, uh, not vetoing the resolution about Jerusalem, uh, December 25th, 2016, after the 2016 election, before Trump took office. They shoved this thing through, and they did. They were all behind it. Um, although if Congress wants to hire and pay somebody $65 million to investigate whether this, my, what I surmise is actually true, I'm willing to take on that task that the Obama administration actually did this. And so my, what I said then was that this, the word there, confirm, um, it, it, it conveys the sense, how the word was used back at the time of Daniel, is a forcing with force. So it may not be some, something that everybody agrees to, it may be forced on people. I cannot discount that possibility. So that sort of upends a lot of little assumptions that uh, in the, um, put that in your sausage machine and let's see what comes out the other end. <laughs> but I'm just saying is the, the scripture's not entirely clear exactly what this is, but the scripture is clear. Sacrifices will cease. Uh, Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation. Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation. Paul talks about the abomination of desolation. So what I conclude from that is, this abomination of desolation thing is a pretty big deal. 
And there's a lot of things that we could uh, talk about with regard to that. Now, again, this uh, rebuilt temple, I think the scripture is pretty clear that there's going to be a rebuilt temple. It's referenced in a number of places. And it'll be on the Temple Mount. And that timeline will, when, when that's there, that, that sort of changes things. So we see them talking about the red heifer, and they may have a red heifer. They're getting close to the final inspection. I guess the, the two of them that they think might be candidates are getting close to two years old. But this, this Temple Mount thing is sort of the center of all of this conflict anyway. Now, here is uh, one of the uh, religious Muslim Palestinian leaders. And here, this is just from Palestinian Media Watch. Speaking against the agreement, the Palestinian Authority's Supreme Sharia Judge and Chairman of the Supreme Council for Sharia Justice, Mahmoud al-Habash, stated, yeah, stated that the UAE's normalization with Israel is treason. Whoops. Um, he's then explained that normalization with Israel and Jews means that you agree to natural relations with the enemies of the Prophet Muhammad. Al-Habash further stated that any non-Palestinian Muslim coming to pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque via the terms of the UAE-Israeli peace agreement are unwanted in the Palestinian Authority and will be met with contempt. We absolutely won't accept the UAE's treason. One grain of sand from the soil of pure Palestine and from the soil of our Al-Asa Mosque is more precious than our blood and our lives. What happened is treason. This is treachery, not just against the Palestinian people. This is the denial of the, of the heritage of the Prophet Muhammad, which it's not stated anywhere that he ever went to Jerusalem. Are Jerusalem and the Al-Asa Mosque goods that are sold in the market of political prostitution? You, you get the impression he doesn't like this agreement? Okay. Uh, the UAE uh, have sold Jerusalem, have relinquished Jerusalem, and are trying to market their treason as them opening the door for worshipers to come and pray in Jerusalem. Whoever wants to come visit the Al-Aqsa Mosque through the gate of Palestine, welcome, and we will rejoice over him. But whoever wants to come through the Israeli gate is unwanted, and he will find nothing but the shoes of the people of Jerusalem and the spit of people of the people of Jerusalem in his face. So he wasn't very happy about it. They also asked the Mufti, uh, who uh, also was on Palestinian TV, and he said, it is forbidden for a Muslim to arrive in a plane of the United Arab Emirates, or not of the United Arab Emirates, to the Lod Airport in Israel, which today they call the Ben-Gurion Airport. In order to come and pray at the Alaska Mosque, this is false marketing in terms of religious law. Legally false, religiously offensive. So, do you think he's on board with this agreement? This is, and it's interesting, uh, there's a very interesting article just published this week in the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs called Ancient Muslim Texts Confirm the Jewish Temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's not the Quran because the Quran never mentions Jerusalem. The Bible mentions Jerusalem, what, 850 times or whatever. Uh, and so they, uh, this is what the article leads off with. A lie, according to a well-done saying, has no legs, but that, that's, that 
that does not mean that lies do not need them. The oxen in danger libel rests on a huge false leg that in the end will collapse. The lie would not have survived this long, so long without it. Today, the Palestinians and many Muslims charge that Israel seeks to destroy Al-Aqsa and build a temple in its stead on a site where no temple ever stood, that the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount is supposed fraudulent, etc., etc. Um, there are many, and he goes on to relate a number of writings from the 9th and 13th, 14th century that reference the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, I've made reference to this. Somebody graciously sent me a reproduction copy of it, Al-Haram al-Sharif. This was published in 1924 by the Waqf, the Muslim Council that controls the Temple Mount area. The predecessor of that guy you just saw talking about Al-Aqsa and that sort of thing his predecessor had this published. It's a guidebook. You can go buy it online. You can find copies of it. And here's what it says on page four, the Haram, historical sketch. And it says right there, its identity with the site of Solomon's temple is beyond dispute. Now, they've tried to remove all the copies of this. They've, they've sort of, they were uh, Facebook before Facebook was Facebook or face nanny, somebody called it this week, face nanny. And so they, they don't want this out there. And so when Israel regained control of that area in 1967, all of a sudden the narrative changed. The Jews were never here. There was never a temple. Uh, again, he goes on and he cites uh, historian Abu J J Jafar Muhammad bin Jarir al-Tabari. Find that on a check. Please endorse in this space. <laughs> uh, who was one of the first leading and best known commentators on the Quran and the Islamic tradition. One of his ancient manuscripts, which carries a seal of Al-Hazar. Al-Hazar? Al-Hazar University in Cairo. That's the, uh, the head of which is the imam who was kissing the Pope in Dubai when they signed this Abrahamic thing back, this religious pact. And so he says that he writes, among other things, that Beit al-Maqdis, that's a word for the Temple Mount, was built by Solomon, son of David, and was made of gold, pearls, rubies, and the precious stone, paved with silver and gold, and its columns were of gold. And that's a fairly ac accurate description. Another writer in the 14th century said that, uh, from a school of... Um, Sunni Islam said that the vicinity of Al-Aqsa Mosque is having, was built by Solomon. So their own writings support all of this. Other reactions to this agreement with the UAE, Caroline Glick has a very good article in Israel Hayom, uh, published on Friday, is the Palestinian veto a library dead? Just a couple paragraphs from that. The Palestinian veto... So whenever one of these agreements comes along, the Palestinians say, we are not accepting this, and we demand that our Arab brothers stand in unity with us and reject this because we're entitled to all of the land. The Palestinian veto, Caroline writes, rests on a toxic proposition that Israel's right to exist is contingent on its satisfaction of Palestinian claims against it. So long as the Palestinians say they are unappeased, Israel cannot expect the Arab world to either recognize or live in peace with it. 
The very existence of the veto, veto has ensured that the Palestinians will never be satisfied with any Israeli concession and will never agree to peaceful coexistence with the Jewish state. After all, their global and regional importance is a product of this lie. Arab leaders, she says, have gone along with this. Um, she says this, um, last Thursday, and she goes through the agreement and says, uh, there's some pretty amazing things in here. If these claims are true, she says, then last Thursday's Israel diplomatic, Israel's diplomatic standing was transformed. The most powerful and successful state in the Middle East is no longer a regional scapegoat. There can be no greater blow to the likes of the UN and BDS campaigners uh, than that. If the veto had been thrown into, if the veto has been thrown into history's trash heap, then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu won't simply be remembered as the greatest statesman of Israel has known. He will be remembered as a diplomatic magician. If the claims of the peace deal between Israel and the UAE killed the Palestinian, killed the Palestinian veto are true, then President Trump has made a greater contribution to the peace in the Middle East than all of his predecessors combined. But so the thing that you take away from this is, listen, there is a very concerted effort to try to resolve this situation. And I think this is very significant from a prophetic standpoint. Exactly how it all plays out is we do not know. It's a very important article, and I'll talk, um, I'll use this, I'll talk about this a little bit and finish up. Very important article in the Times of London, the Times of uh, London, the UK Times on Wednesday by uh, Roger Boyce. He says, Mossad thinks that Turkey is a bigger menace than Iran. And so what you're seeing is we've talked a lot about Turkey over the last number of weeks, the things that are happening in Turkey. Hagia Sophia has been turned from a museum into a mosque. There was another famous museum in Istanbul or in Turkey this week that was also changed from a museum back to a mosque. So this is what Erdogan is doing. He's, this is how he operates. This is how Muslims operate. They're conquering things bit by bit. This is very significant in terms of the Bible prophecy timeline. Um, he says this, the man, this is what the article in the Times says, the man who is given most public credit for negotiating a groundbreaking deal between Israel and the UAE is the head of the Mossad, Yossi Cohen. He has been talking secretly with fellow spooks in the Gulf states for years, pointing out that they share a common enemy, Iran. But there was another encounter about 20 months ago when he let slip another agenda. Iranian power is fragile, he reportedly told spy masters from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates. But the real threat is from Turkey. That was quite something coming from the spy chief or mastermind of the Israeli heist of large chunks of the Iranian nuclear archive from a warehouse in central Tehran. His point, though, was not that Iran had ceased to be an existential menace, but rather that it could be contained through sanctions, embargoes, intelligence sharing, and clandestine raids. Turkey's coercive dis diplomacy, its sloppily calculated risk-taking across the Middle East, posed a different kind of challenge to strategic stability in the eastern Mediterranean. We've talked about how they've entered into these agreements on gas and that type of thing. They're trying to project power as much as they can. And so this is, and this is causing disruptive uh, relations between people in NATO. Turkey is, outside the United States, the largest military in NATO. I don't know if you knew that. 
It is, I believe, around the 17th largest economy in the world. It's not an inconsequential country. Now, they're having tremendous economic problems, but that doesn't seem to bother Erdogan as he continues to push forward with his uh, Islamic, revive the Ottoman Empire um, uh, goal. So he's moving along, moving along, moving along, regardless of the economic things. And he's, a lot of times he does this to uh, gain political favor in Turkey. But he's very clever. He, is, he's re he can recite the Quran. He, he memorized it as a young man. So he is a radical Islamist Muslim Brotherhood. This is an editorial cartoon from Arab News the other day that shows that Turkey and Iran are playing with the pieces on the Middle East chessboard. And I thought that was a pretty good representation of exactly what is going on. Now, with regard to Iran and Turkey, just a little bit about them and some of the things going on recently with them, because we know that when we read Ezekiel 38, 39, we know that Iran and Turkey, there are a number of people groups that are identified in Ezekiel 38, Mushak, Tubal, those those people we know most of those are centered in turkey so to say that it's pretty easy to show that turkey is part of this coalition we know that persia iran is also part of this coalition they're not happy with this Rouhani, the president at least for now of the uh, iran the islamic republic of iran says we warn the emirates Emir emiratis that lest it, the agreement, finds a place for the Zionist regime in the region, then it will be different and they will be treated differently. In other words, if Israel's able to expand anything at all, we're going to hold the UAE right across the Gulf from us, the Persian Gulf, we're going to hold them responsible. It's interesting that uh, this is the front page of the Tehran Times this morning. We are the nation of Imam Hussein. Now, this is official government newspaper publication, and they're talking about this imam who was a grandson. This is when the Shia Islamists separated from the Sunni Islamists over who is to secede Muhammad. Now this uh, Imam Hussein, um, also called Imam Ali, he's always represented sort of like Muhammad is, you don't see his face. And this is how the website of Ayatollah Khomeini describes this guy, the greatest martyr of the history of Islam and of mankind, the most selfless and most sacrificing uh, figure for Islam and Muslims. According to the Holy Prophet of Islam, Imam Ali is the benchmark for recognizing the truth. So these are the people that are in charge of Iran. This doesn't mean that it's all the Iranian people, but the people in charge are these Mahdi, bring back the Mahdi, bring back the 12th Imam, which is in the secession from Imam Hussein. And this is what's on the front page of their papers today. Seth Fransman also picks up on the theme. He has an article on this morning's Jerusalem Post website. And also this, that there's a lot of stuff going up, going on in the Mediterranean right now. Uh, Turkey is stoking things in Libya. Turkey is stoking things in Sudan. I believe the foreign minister of Sudan came out and said, hey, I'm on board with this United Arab Emirates peace deal. And he's, I believe, been fired. Uh, 
because he's not towing the line. Uh, Turkey, you know, is trying to project its power on the gas supplies. So this is um, kind of a big deal. Iran, at the same time, they uh, have released some new rockets. One is called the Soleimani, named after the general of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard that the um, U.S. took out back in January of this year, which seems like it was a really long time ago. Turkey, this is uh, a map that would sort of um, reflect Erdogan's goals. He wants to reconstitute the Ottoman Empire, which you would see in the parchment color there. He, they controlled Mecca and Medina for a while, you know, until around 1920, when they, 1917 to 1923, when the Ottoman Empire fell apart when a lot of things fell apart, and when the map was remade of the Middle East that's affecting us today. A couple weeks ago, this is kind of interesting because this is a week before, this is an interview with the Defense Minister Akar of Turkey. And if you look at the Turkish media, you'll see him, he gives almost as many speeches as Erdogan. Not quite, but he's pretty good at it. He's everywhere. And he did this interview with uh, Al Jazeera, which is based in Oman, which is very pro-Muslim Brotherhood. Erdogan is pro-Muslim Brotherhood. That's why he's at odds with Egypt, which kicked the Muslim Brotherhood out. Oman is a, Oman, um, I'm not sorry, Oman, I mean Qatar. Qatar is a big supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood and radical terrorism. And essentially in this interview, what the defense minister was saying, this is a week before the announcement of the agreement between the United Arab Emirates and the Israel. He's saying, listen, um, we don't like what you're doing. Um, we think that this is treasonous. Uh, we don't like the way they're acting. And this is before the agreement was announced. And they're saying, if this doesn't uh, we, you know, look, we in Turkey, we don't really like the military option. We try to, you know, be at peace with everybody, but sometimes we're forced into it, like we were forced into it in Syria. Wink, 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 I think he would say, <laughs> if you looked at him. But, and we, we didn't really want to do anything in Libya, but, you know, Libya, that was part of the Ottoman Empire, and they're falling apart, and they have oil and gas supplies, and we have to enter into this agreement. But he's saying this, and listen, United Arab Emirates, if you don't, if you continue on this path, we're, we're going to take you out, is essentially what he's saying. And Turkey is now making inroads into Iraq. So that's yet another thing that people need to uh, watch out for. So in this interview, um, this is what he said, that you got to withdraw your troops from Yemen. Turkey's trying to push themselves into Yemen. And, you know, UAE is bad, bad, bad. And everybody would say, well, no, they're really, they're really pretty good people. So this is what uh, the uh, Daily Sabah article that referenced this said, the latest statements of a car have to be read. This was August 6th. Have to be read with caution since Ankara would not give these messages lightly just as it waited before entering in the, the field in Syria. Ankara seem, seems decisive in answering the UAE's destructive and unstabilizing policies of hindering democracy 
as well as sabotaging peace in a wide range, wide region ranging from Syria to Libya to Yemen. So this is sort of like the left, and the you know they accuse you of being what you really are, because because we know that Turkey is projecting power everywhere. Ankara has openly, the article said, declared that it will from now on not confine itself to. hostile policies toward Turkey and all Arab people. Now it merely awaits the suitable conditions, time and priorities to give its response. So that's, that's a big threat. And that was before this agreement. So you can imagine what is going to be coming from Turkey in the near term about the traitorous United Arab Emirates. Now I, uh, Erdogan went on um, the news the other day, Friday, and they led up to it. The big announcement coming, big announcement coming. And he came out and he says, we've just discovered in the Black Sea the largest gas find in the history of Turkey. Turkey doesn't really have a lot of gas or oil resources that are natural. So they found this. Now, I think he's probably overplaying it a bit. It is... Um, probably enough gas for 11 to 13 years. It's going to take three or four years before they could even get to it and get it into production. But it would give Turkey a significant amount of leverage for at least for a time with regard to its dependence on gas that comes from Russia. So this is uh, kind of a big deal. So it was found in uh, Turkey's uh, exclusive economic zone in the Black Sea. Maybe they're making it up. So, conflict. So we have you know this normalization of relations between the UAE and Israel. We have Turkey and Iran causing trouble everywhere. We have problems in Libya, Syria, and then we also have some things that came out about um, Lebanon this week. This is uh, what somebody did was they took broken glass and made uh, some art on the street. Uh, that's broken glass and then some green and yellow paper, but that's a phoenix rising from the ashes. That was done down, you can see the silos in the background. Now the other thing that uh, took place this week was there was a verdict of the international court that has been investigating and trying in absentia five members of Hezbollah for the assassination of Rafiq Hariri on February 14, 2005. I've mentioned that in the last couple of weeks. A very, this is sort of the aftermath of that explosion. He was assassinated in a car bomb uh, in Beirut, not too far from the waterfront. This is the crater that was left afterwards. It killed 21 or 23 people, injured 226, and the Prime Minister of Lebanon was uh, killed. This is a picture taken about eight months after the event. You can see the the crater that it made and the hotels and buildings that were there just ripped the facades off. You can see the roof and everything is gone. It was a pretty powerful bomb. This is what the waterfront looked like that morning. And it's interesting, you can see this is the waterfront. You see on the left-hand corner uh, about a third of the way up, you see the silos that were destroyed in the bomb. So this is all in the same area. And it's pretty clear that Hezbollah was involved. So the court came out this week with this ruling that, and I won't, uh, 
I found it interesting, uh, although the court discussion was about six hours long. Um, and then they interviewed Saad Hariri, the son of Rafiq Hariri, at the end. And he said, look, the, the court's spoken, it's all over with. And he does this because Hezbollah will, he's under threat from Hezbollah. He, he was prime minister until early, earlier this year, and he, he gave in to Hezbollah. So it's, um, it's a very significant ruling. They did find that one of the members was responsible. Said he had a bomb, there was a car and a bomb. Don't know that he really intended to kill people, but he set the bomb off and it killed a bunch of people, including the prime minister. So we, we can, without a reasonable doubt, we can find him guilty, but we just don't have enough information to say that Hezbollah, or the other four people that were tried in absentia, and one or two of who are already dead anyway, we just don't have enough evidence on them. No, because Hezbollah would not cooperate, as you can imagine. So, um, but an important ruling because it just shows that in many respects, Hezbollah got away with another one. And they always seem to get away with another one. There is a website at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. It's an interactive website, and it will show you all of the different places around the world that Hezbollah is involved. It's pretty shocking at the places that they have put up their little cells, including in Central and South America. And I think they probably have them in America, too. So one more thing here just about the agreement with Libya. Uh, this is another player in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And apparently they've, uh, both sides have agreed to a ceasefire. Whether this leads to some kind of arrangement and a rebirth of the Libyan state, which I think Russia would like to control and which Turkey would like to control, another, I think, fairly significant development. So listen, a lot of things going on on many different levels. Um, we have to be um, aware of these things. These things are, um, I think, playing into Bible prophecy. I would not characterize things like the Ezekiel 38 war as imminent. Um, there's not even an agreement among Bible prophecy teachers as to when the Ezekiel 38 war takes place. Some thinks it's three and a half years before the 70th week begins. Some think it's at the beginning of the, in the beginning parts of the 70th week. Some think it's just before. Some think it's part of the Armageddon campaign. And I can show you teachings of people that I respect, that I have a lot of respect for, that have differed over their life, where they've said, oh, this is part of Armageddon, and now they say, no, it's, it's before the 70th week. So. We'll, we'll know when we know, but I don't think that there's what I always look for is a great company, a mighty army. That's what's described in Ezekiel that will invade Israel in the latter times. I don't see a great company and a mighty army. I see people who would like that to be the case, but it will take time to assemble that army. I think there'll be plenty of warning. You're not going to get a million troops and all their supplies and everything there overnight. That just doesn't happen. They're, they're a, it's a logistical problem. It's not a fact whether it happens or not. It's the logistics of getting it to happen. So, but pay attention because a lot of these things are coming to pass. So let's pray and we'll talk about this. And I do apologize I didn't do it midweek this week. I just got uh, 
pretty busy. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the indicators of things that are going on and the uh, really rather troubling time that we see unfolding in front of us. But we need to understand, help us to remember that we as Christians are not given in a spirit of fear, but of power, and that we should um, operate in that mode, knowing that our that we we know where we're going, regardless of how we get there. We just pray that we will stand true to the truth of the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and all things being done for the glory of God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.